Um, it's fun to, to be here teaching on a Thursday. I can't remember the last time I did it, but uh, yeah, I'm really excited. Why don't you guys uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 9, and before I forget, uh, Trina said there is cake out there to celebrate, I believe, Dan's birthday. Um, yeah, and uh, so after service, then there's cake. Yeah, that sounds, that's fair, that's fair. It's very loving of you, Dan, which is good, because that's what we're talking about. Okay, um, so 2 Samuel 9, uh, the title of today's study, How Do We Love Like Jesus? How do we love like Jesus? So we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about how to love, and we're going to be talking about the kind of love that draws people to Jesus, the kind of love that we see shown by God all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So our, our study today, uh, we're going to have three parts. Part one is going to be the, the imperative of love, why it's important that we love others. Um, we're just going to look briefly at John 13. Uh, and then part two is going to be our text in Samuel, Second uh, Samuel chapter 9. Uh, and we're going to see the love of God lived out by David uh, in the life of David. And then part three is going to be some application, what we learn about love from that story. Um, so why don't we, um, I'm just going to start with prayer. So Lord Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would you'd speak to us, Lord, as we look at this story and, and uh would you just minister to our hearts, Lord, and, and would you give us such a vision of uh, the love that you have for us, Lord, that we were just singing about, about this great love and how you've conquered sin, and uh, just help us to understand anew uh, a and, and in a fresh way uh, just the reality and the, the greatness of your love for us, um, and help us to understand just, uh, would you just speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit, um, as to how we can share that love and show that love to others, Lord. Uh, so would you just be with us as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so part one, the imperative of love. Uh, so I found this story uh, on the internet. I was, I was studying about this, uh, about a man who, who observed this uh, kind of love. His, man, his name is uh, Tal Brook, uh, and he's, he was this guy who... He, he got saved, spoiler alert, end of the story. Um, but he, now he works uh, for this organization in California that they research cults and, and they do apologetics and stuff. But he was into Hinduism, so he was in India uh, studying uh, for a number of years. And he was actually being groomed to be like the Western spokesman for uh, one of the main, like the guru of gurus in India at that time uh, named Sai Baba. And he was... He was basically the guy that ever, all the other gurus went to for, for a blessing and, and, you know, thousands of people would, said, would go to this, uh, to just catch a glimpse of this guy and there was like rumors of he would, that he worked miracles and, and all, of these, all these things. And, and this guy, Tal Brook, he'd, he'd had numerous private audiences um, with this guru, Sai, Sai Baba. And while he was there, he met a missionary couple and... He, he tried to use his brilliant mind and his logical skills to convert them to Hinduism, but they put some dents in his argument. But more than that, what he noticed about them over time was that they really seemed to care for him more than they did themselves. 
Later, he described this as others-centered love, what we know as agape love. And though the other Hindu disciples were gentle, Tal noticed that they lacked this quality. And above all, after numerous private, private audiences with Sai Baba, Tal noted that the guru also utterly lacked this others-centered love. He was beginning to understand what the Apostle John meant when he said, how will they know that these are disciples of Jesus? They will know them by their love. It's a paraphrase of John 13. Now, in that passage in John 13, we'll just be there for a moment. Uh, it's the night that Jesus was betrayed. And, you know, they were sitting around the table after, after supper, and Jesus had picked up a towel to wash the disciples' feet. And then, and then after he did that, he said to them in verse 14 and 15, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who, sent, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. After Judas was revealed as the traitor and left uh, later that evening, Jesus, he turned to the rest of his disciples and he began for the next five chapters to give them these instructions and encouragement, which would be like his final words to them before he went to the cross. And he starts to tell them, okay, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he, he transitions into uh, beginning the instruction. And the first thing that he tells them um, is in verse 34 of, of John 13. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the first commandment that he gives them is to love each other. And not just a brotherly love or a family kind of love, though those would have been helpful as these, this band of, of ragged, rugged men went around telling people about Jesus and, and working together. But he told them to love each other, the agape love, just like he had loved them, just like he had been showing them for the last three years. He was calling them to a life of selfless, others-centered, sacrificial, foot-washing kind of love. And he's calling us to the same kind of life. Later on in this uh, in this discourse that evening in John 15, John, or Jesus comes back to this commandment of love. And he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus says here that the greatest expression of this kind of love is to lay down your life for others. He was instructing us as to what it looks like to love others. And he says the greatest love that we can show is to lay down our lives. There is no greater love than this. Jesus said so. But what does that mean? What does that actually look like in our life, to lay down our life for others? The first thing that comes to my mind when I hear that is this like, idea of oh, taking a bullet for someone or running into a burning building to rescue somebody and, and you risk your life or you give your life to save somebody else's life. And I think it's true that, that is, there is no greater sacrifice that we could, that we could you know, give as a, as, a, as a human than to give our life for somebody. But I, think, I don't think Jesus was just saying, okay, hey, run around taking bullets for each other. Um, 
there's some practical application this side of, of dying that we can draw from as well. There are plenty of non-fatal ways to live out that command. Um, and while it's, while it's pretty unlikely that we will ever need to, to step in front of someone and take a bullet, right, for somebody else, it's guaranteed that we will have opportunities to die to self. And that's what this is about. Laying down our life usually looks like dying to ourself. Laying down our desires, laying down our needs, laying down our rights, laying down our preferences, our comforts in order to love and serve others. It's, it looks more like our flesh dying than, than actually taking a bullet in most cases. You know, it's going to look like, like it says in Philippians uh, 2, 3, and 4, um, where it says that we're, you know, we're considering others as more important than us and looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that verse, you know, look out not for your own interests, but all the, also the interests of others, you know, it looks really good on a poster on your wall, like hung like right at eye level where your kids can see it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's, that's great for that, but it's actually really hard. It's actually really hard to do that. Because it's, it's easy to be loving when it lines up with what you want to do or when it's comfortable. It's like, okay, I can, I can do the loving thing because I don't really mind it. But when it comes to seeking the good of somebody else above your own, laying down what you want to do to do what somebody else, what's going to be good for somebody else, that's a lot harder, right? It's a lot easier than the poster looks. But Jesus didn't say, okay, the greatest love is going to be when you're the most comfortable. He said the greatest love is laying down your life for someone else. And that's the kind of love that will show people the love of God. That is the kind of love that Jesus showed with his life. And that's the kind of love Jesus has called us to have, not just called us to have, but commanded us as his disciples to have. He said, this, this is what I want you to do. This is a new commitment. Love others as I have loved you. So if you're asking, uh, how does this tie into 2 Samuel 9? Great question. Uh, and the answer is this. It's that in this little story, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see David living out this kind of love. It's what he refers to uh, in this story as the kindness of God. It's, a, it's an Old Testament story that illustrates this, this New Testament principle or, or command. Right? Jesus has called us to love others with the love of God. And in this story, we see David showing God's love, God's kindness to Mephibosheth. Right Now, this, this story in 2 Samuel, it's not an exhaustive Bible study on how to love like Jesus, but it's a very beautiful and helpful example of what God's love looks like in day-to-day life. And I don't know about you, but I like hearing stories because they help me remember all the big theological things because I'm like, oh, that's how you do it. You see it in practice. So let's get into the story, uh, part two, a story of love. So 2 Samuel, uh, just to give a, a little bit of context, um, it goes along with the book of 1 Samuel. They were all one book, uh, but the scrolls weren't big enough, so they had to write them in two scrolls, and we've kept doing that um, ever since then. Uh, but it just tells the story of, of Samuel as, as prophet and then Saul being the king uh, of, 
of Israel and then David taking over after uh, Saul's death. So at the beginning of 2 Samuel, um, Saul had just died in battle, as had Jonathan, his son. And so then David was finally crowned king. And so up to this point, right, 2 Samuel, has, it's just chronicled the exploits of David as king, where he's defeated many enemies. He's, he's recaptured Jerusalem. Uh, he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He had a dance party over it. And then uh, God made this covenant promise in chapter 7 to David that his throne and his house and his kingdom would be established forever. And that's a promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. And so now we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 9. Okay, so verse 1 says, opens the story, and it says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David has this desire to show kindness to someone else or to someone of the house of Saul because of his love for Jonathan. Now there's some backstory there. Uh, David and Jonathan, who is Saul's son, they've been close friends ever since David had come to and killed Goliath. Right? It's written several times uh, that it says Jonathan loved David as his own soul. So they were very good friends. But Jonathan was the son of the king at that time. And as he realized and heard, as we know, Saul, Saul had heard that, that David was going to be the next king. You know, it could have been very easy for Jonathan to be angry or jealous or bitter at David because as the son of the king, the throne could have gone to him. But instead, it was, it was going to David but instead of jealousy or envy, Jonathan loved David and he supported him, even risking his life for David. Okay, and Jonathan, he didn't owe David this love or loyalty. But it was an expression of this kindness, this, this love that he had for him. Now the last time that they uh, met that, that was recorded is in 1 Samuel 20. Saul was plotting to kill David again. And knowing that they would not likely see each other again, Jonathan asked David to make a covenant with him that David would never stop showing kindness to Jonathan's family. It seems that Jonathan is very aware of the fact that David was going to be the, the next king. Uh, and so he asks David, make this covenant to me that your, that, that your, your kindness, your love uh, will, will never depart from my family. And so David swears to that. And so here in, in 2 Samuel 9, in light of that covenant, because of that deep friendship that David and Jonathan had, Jonathan, or David is now, he's looking for a way to keep that covenant with Jonathan he wants to show kindness to someone because of Jonathan. And I think it's, it's a very clear example of, of what it means when it says that David was a man after God's own heart because we're going to see David exemplify uh, the, and the kind of kindness and love that we see coming from God. So what he wants to do, his desire, he says, I want to show kindness because of Jonathan, for Jonathan's sake, to someone of the house of Saul. We need to look at this word kindness because it's, it's mentioned three different times uh, in the text, and it's, 
it's, uh, it's, it's very important because uh, later on he, in verse 3, he uses it, and David clarifies. He says, this is the kindness of God. So he's not just saying, I want to be nice, but he wants to show the same kind of love and compassion that he has seen and knows that God has. And that's why we're looking at this passage in the context of learning to show people the love of God. So this word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And this word is actually part of what drew me to this chapter. The word chesed is it's a very deep word in Hebrew. It's very rich in meaning. It's one of those words that doesn't have, really have an English equivalent that we can just say, oh, this word means this word, right? There's not really one word that can describe Hesed, or, or there's not even two or ten. In fact, between seven of the most common translations, between those seven, the way that they translate this word hesed, they come up with over a hundred different words or, or, or forms of that word. I'm going to give you about a quarter of them, so we're not here all night. But just to give you an idea of the meaning that this word carries with it, and, and you can see how complex it is for them to translate this into just one word. So here's the list. This word has been translated as love, loving kindness, merciful love, loyal love, enduring love, extravagant love, love in action, generous love, faithful love, covenant love, loyal Loyal faithfulness, loyal mercy, kindness, loyal kindness, grace, everlasting kindness, mercy, generous mercy, compassion, persistent faithfulness, extravagant generosity, strength, devout, active goodness, loyal friendship, immense favor, endlessly patient, and commitment. That's just a fraction of the words that it are used to, to try to accurately convey what this word is conveying. And so that's what is in mind when David says, I want to show this kind of love to someone from the house of Saul. Author and musician Michael Card, some of you guys know who he is, he wrote an entire book uh, just exploring this one word, has said, um, and he spent... 10 years working on this book, studying one word. Can you imagine 10 years studying just one word in the Bible? And, and in his book, uh, the most succinct definition he could come up with after all his studies, and he, he gives it a little caveat, and he says it's an incomplete definition. So the best that he can do after 10 years of studying it is this. Hesed means... When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have the, a right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's what this word kindness means. Now this word, this word has said, one of the first, uh, not one of the first, but one of the times that it's used is one of the first times that God describes himself in Scripture, and that's in Exodus 34, where he says, I am this. 34, 5 through 7, um, you know, Moses had, had asked God, he's like, I want to see your glory. And, and so he came up and covered him with his hand, and then 
He says, verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he describes himself, and in that twice, he uses that word hesed. He said abounding in goodness, or hesed, and truth, and then keeping hesed for thousands. That's who God describes himself is. This is one of the... The, the core attributes of God. And Moses is so convinced of this Hesed love of God towards his people that later in Numbers 14, he actually reminds God of what he said, what he described himself to be. And he said, that is the basis upon which you should forgive and spare the grumbling, complaining children of Israel. They didn't want to go into Canaan, Joshua, and Caleb. God to spy out the land. They didn't want to go in. And God says, I'm going to smite them. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm done. And Moses intercedes in Numbers 14, 17 through 20. And he says to the Lord, he says, And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, has said, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of the people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, your has said, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Moses was so confident in this love that God had towards him and towards his people that he brought it to the Lord and said, this is who you are. And God said, I will, I will pardon them. I don't understand how all that works, but that's what happened. So it's an attribute that we are told in Scripture that God has, and it's something that we see over and over in the Old Testament that God exhibits, Okay. Moses was convinced and relied upon this character of God. And you know, this, this Hesed love was something that David also was convinced of and relied upon as well. He wrote about it about half the times that this word is mentioned. It's in the book of Psalms. It's what he referred to in Psalm 23, 6, where he says, Surely goodness and Hesed, mercy, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He says, surely this, this love, it's not going away. And David was so confident in God's hesed towards him that it's the first thing he mentions in Psalm 51 as he cries out for forgiveness for his sin against Bathsheba. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your hesed, according to your loving kindness. That love, Hesed love, is the kind of love that David had experienced from God and knew that God had towards him. And it's the kind of love and favor that David had received from Jonathan because David didn't necessarily have any right to expect this love and loyalty from Jonathan, but Jonathan gave it to him. It was an undeserved love. This is the very thing that Jonathan asked David to promise him 
and his family, when they made that covenant together, he said, promise me that your said towards me and my family will never depart. And this is the kind of love that David desires to show someone from the house of Saul. In other words, David desired to love others the way God loved him. And that's exactly what Jesus has called us to do. That's what he told his disciples. As you've seen me, as, as I have loved you, so you should love others. And that's what we see. We see Hesed in action, this love in action in the rest of this passage. Verses uh, two through three, it continues. So David, he wants somebody to show this kind of love to. And verse two says, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So David calls Ziba, one of Saul's servants, and asks him if there's anyone left who's a descendant of Saul. David was willing not just to show kindness to Jonathan's family, but to Saul as well. David tell, or, or Ziba tells David, there is someone. It's a man named Mephibosheth which we actually learn that later. And he adds that he's lame in both his feet. So Mephibosheth is, is Jonathan's son, and, and he's lame. He can't walk. We learn from chapter 5 of 2 Samuel that after, uh, they, after Jonathan and, and Saul had both died, uh, Mephibosheth's nurse had heard of it, and she was fleeing. She was trying to get out of the house, and in her haste, she dropped little Mephibosheth, whose name was bigger than him at that point, and somehow damaged both his feet, leaving him unable to walk for the rest of his life. So that's how Mephibosheth ended up lame. And so David has found someone to whom he can show this kindness, and he's lame in both feet. That wasn't a requirement, but that's just how it was. Verses 4 and 5. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. So David sends for Mephibosheth to be brought before him. Mephibosheth had been living with a man named Machir in the city of Lodabar, which was to the north. Uh, it was just south of the Sea of Galilee in that region. And he brought him to him. Verses 6 through 8 says, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog 
as I. So Mephibosheth comes before David, and this lame man, he throws himself on the ground and bows before David. He's, under, he's understandably afraid because he didn't necessarily know that David and his father were close friends because he was only five years old when his father had died. So there's, it would be reasonable for him to, to potentially expect his head to be cut off. He didn't know what was coming. But David tells Mephibosheth, there is no fear. You have no need to fear because his desire was to show him kindness. And kindness is what David showed him. He, he, gives, him, he gives him land. He says, for your father Jonathan's sake, right? I'm going to restore to you all the land and the house of Saul. Everything that had belonged to Saul. You know, for a lame man like Mephibosheth, I think to acquire his own land would have been near impossible. There weren't like desk jobs that he could work in his wheelchair, right? Life would have been extremely difficult as a cripple in those days. And he would have had to rely on the help and kindness of others just to survive. But David just didn't just give him land. He gave him a place at his own table. He invited him to sit in his own house, to sit at the king's table and eat the king's food. He essentially adopted him as part of his family. But, but then, not just that, David didn't just give Mephibosheth some land and say, all right, here's your land. Have fun taking care of it. You know, I know you can't walk, but take care of the land. He does more than that. He gets Ziba, one of Saul's servants, the one who came to him, and he calls to him in verse 9, and it says, King called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, I have given your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. David basically sets up Mephibosheth for life. He assigned Ziba and his whole crew to manage the property from Mephibosheth, bring him all the proceeds. This was huge. He didn't have to do anything. He just had to receive it. He now had land. He had a crew to work it for him. You know, Ziba wasn't just by himself. He had 15 sons. We pass over that too easily. He had 15 sons. So daughters aren't even mentioned there. Dude had a lot of kids and 20 servants. Okay, so just including the sons and the servants and Ziba, that's 36 people who are now working for Mephibosheth to take care of him. Okay, he was set up not just to provide for himself, but for his son and for the rest of his family. He was set for life. Like this is something that could be passed on to further generations. This is above and beyond what you would ever expect anyone to give anybody else. This is what David gave Mephibosheth. And I think that is just 
what Hesed love does. That's just what it looks like. It's extravagant. And in verse 13, it says, So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So the farm is set up, and Mephibosheth, he just continued to live with David as part of his family. Well, Ziba and the boys took care of the farm, right? You could say that Hesed love didn't come to visit Mephibosheth. It came to live with him. It became a permanent part of his life because for the rest of his life, he would, he would experience the benefits of being loved in this way. So that brings us to part three, what we learn about loving others from this passage. So I have 10 observations from this story or, or applications about what this kind of love looks like. Okay, so I'm just going to get in because there's 10 of them. They're not crazy long, but it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do all of them. So number one, okay, love is an overflow. This is the first thing that we learn in verse one. So in this story, we see that this love that David had received from Jonathan, it was part of what motivated him to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. Right? Jonathan, the son of Saul, had showed Hesed love to David in his friendship. David didn't have any right to expect love or friendship or loyalty from Jonathan, but that's what he received. And, and we saw in that, in that interaction with Jonathan and David where they make that covenant that, that Jonathan, he acknowledges and he supports David's coming kingship. And he asked David to be kind to his family. And so because of the love that David received from Jonathan, he desired to show love to Jonathan's family. It was love that, that reciprocated, that his love overflowed. The love he received overflowed. And that's the same kind of love that we receive from God. Right? It's love that we don't deserve, that we did not deserve. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, he gave us his only son to die in our place. We didn't deserve that. We were sinners. We justly deserved God's wrath as punishment for our sin. Punishment would have been a reasonable, expected response. But through Jesus, God has given us abundant life instead. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says it best. It says, but God who rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We have received an abundance of grace, of love from God to us in Jesus. And so because we've received an abundance of grace, we have an abundance of grace to give others. Because we have been forgiven much, we can love much. But God has not called us to manufacture our own love to give to people, but he's called us to receive his love and let it overflow into the lives of those around us. He is the source of love. The natural byproduct of being loved, of experiencing God's love, is loving others. 
the more we abide in his great love for us, the more naturally it will flow out of us. So the first and most crucial step to loving others is not to produce more love, but to receive more love from God, to meditate on it, to learn of it. Number two, we learn that love takes the first step. We see this in verse one as well, because David, he did not wait for an opportunity to present itself to show Hesed to someone from Saul's house. He wasn't passive about it. He sought out an opportunity to show love to someone. He was actively looking for it. And we see that, we know that God, he did not wait for us to come knocking to ask him to send a savior. He had set a plan in motion from before the foundation of the world. God sent Jesus to pay for our sin before we even realized we needed a savior. God has taken the first step in our salvation. And so for us to love like that looks like being proactive in loving people. It's not just sitting around waiting for someone to come by and we're like, I guess I'll be loving to you. It means looking for opportunities, looking for needs that people may have. You know, people don't usually uh, submit their needs or their hurts to some tidy form online where they can be addressed and dealt with in the order in which they were received. You know, when we're hurting and broken and needy, we don't typically broadcast it, right? We're more likely to hide it. I don't know about you guys, but I think we're more likely to hide it because the enemy is telling all of us, he wants us all to think that everyone else, everyone else is perfect and problem-free. You're the only messed up one, so put on your happy face and go to church and make everybody think that you're doing great, except we're all in that boat. Can we just agree all of us are, are in that boat? We think everybody else has it together and we're the only broken ones. But all of us, all of us are broken. And it usually just takes someone seeking us out and intentionally asking, hey, how are you? It takes intentionality. But then we have the opportunity to share that burden for other people to bear our burdens. We have to look for those opportunities to bear one another's burdens. And you know what? The more we look and the more willing we are to actually love somebody in that way when, when somebody says, actually, I do have something, the more willing we are, the more the Lord is going to help us see the needs that people have, both physical needs and spiritual needs. Now, something that came to mind as I was thinking about this is the reality that when people need to be loved the most, they're usually the hardest to love. They're the most prickly. But don't let that stop you because it's normal for broken things to have sharp edges, right? And that's what we find when we go out and we say, hey, how are you? Sometimes there's sharp edges on broken people. Sometimes I have sharp edges. Number three, we see that love lives out forgiveness. In verse three, you know, he said that I'm looking for someone of the house of Saul. You know that David would want to show kindness and, and take the first step in showing kindness to someone from Saul's household. After all that Saul did to David, which was a lot, that could only be the case if David had forgiven Saul and he was walking in that forgiveness. He kept forgiving Saul. 
That's hard to do, though. You know, it's, it's easy to love people who have been nice to you, right? That's easy. It's much harder, though, to love people who've hurt you and who've treated you poorly. Forgiveness was crucial for David to be able to love Saul's family. But you and I, we need to remember how much we've been forgiven, right? God has chosen to to place all the punishment that you and I deserve upon Jesus, and Jesus absorbed it all. He's cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. That means that us and our sin, you and your sin, will never meet again. He's chosen to not remember our sins and our iniquities. He says, I will remember them no more. That means he's not going to bring them back and hang them over our head, throw them in our face. They're gone. Though our sins are as scarlet, he's made us white as snow. And so for us to love like that, or so for us to love like we have been loved, means that we are willing to forgive people who have wronged us. We have been forgiven so much, and that gives us the ability to forgive other people. And when we do that, that allows us to love them, right? It's easy to love people who we like. It's harder to love people who we don't like or don't really know, but it's much harder to forgive and love someone that has hurt us deeply. You know, forgiveness is not easy, but it's possible, It's possible. The Lord will help us. But unforgiveness, it will hinder our ability to love. It's like a kink in a hose. Until you get get it straightened out, love can't flow. So we can't get comfortable being, being bent out of shape about something. We have to let the Lord help us and by his grace extend the same forgiveness that we have received to others. So love lives out forgiveness. Number four, love is not afraid of brokenness. Love is not afraid of brokenness. You know, when David asked for someone to show Hesed to, he didn't know that it would be Mephibosheth, lame in both feet. Right? He didn't know Mephibosheth was going to be, was going to be lame. But what did he say when Ziba said to him, oh, there's the son of Jonathan and he's lame. He's lame in both his feet. The king said, where's he at? Bring him here. He poured love out onto Mephibosheth. It didn't stop him, right? Mephibosheth being literally physically broken, it did not stop David from loving him. You have to realize that this would have been a sacrifice. It wasn't just like, oh, come on in, like just some person. As someone who couldn't walk, there was no wheelchairs, right? There were no ramps, you know, wheelchair ramps in David's house. It would have been a sacrifice. It would have required people to, to always be available to help him get around. But David didn't shy away because it was extra work. He wasn't like, oh, a lame guy? I don't want to show love to a lame guy, right? Sometimes that's our excuse. I don't want to show love to them. They're lame. But David was not ashamed, right? He was not ashamed to have a cripple in his home. He was not ashamed to have a cripple at his table. And the reality is that that's us. We're all cripples at the Lord's table, right? We've been given a place. We've been carried in and given a place at the Lord's table. You know, he, God knows so much better than we ever will how broken we were 
before we knew him. And he still knows how broken we are without him. More than we even realize. You know, we're all broken in different ways. We all have different things that we struggle with. Sin comes out in different ways for all of us. Right? Some of it's, for some of us, it's anger or fear or self-pity. Some of us, it's jealousy. Some of us, it's pride. And most of us, it's D, all of the above. But no, yet knowing the depth of our brokenness, God has chosen us to be his own children, his own people, his bride. That's what God has done for us. So let's not forget how he has loved us and who he has loved Let's not forget who we were before he saved us and, or who we still are some days. You know, we're all so prone to only loving lovable people. I know I am. Right? We're, we're prone to judge other people by their appearance. It's so much easier to love the people that we like, people who are pleasant, people who don't have problems. But maybe those are just the people who are better at hiding their problems. You know, when people walk into our church and we immediately think like, oh, they don't belong here. They're not, they're not like us. That's when we need to move towards them, not away from them. That's when we need to strike up a conversation with that person who kind of looks out of place, right? Instead of avoiding them or ignoring them or thinking, one of the other 200 people here will talk to them and, and, and they're fine. Like, I'm fine. I'll just, I'll just go over here and get some coffee. You know, it's so easy to be repulsed by somebody else's brokenness, isn't it? But really, the only difference between your rotten sinfulness and mine is I'm used to the smell, and I'm not used to your stench, right? We're all stinky sinners. We've just gotten used to our own. Right? God is not afraid of drawing broken people to himself, and we shouldn't be either, because that was us. He drew us to himself. Number five, love has no strings attached. Right? So Mephibosheth being lame, it means that he couldn't really return David's kindness in any way, right? In any similar manner, but that didn't stop David from loving him. He didn't, he didn't love Mephibosheth and do this for him because he's like, oh, he's going he's gonna to get me back. He's going to get me back. It's going to be good. There was no caveats or contingencies to what he gave him. There were no, like, you only get this if you're going to do this. There were no expectations or requirements that he placed on him. There was just kindness. All Mephibosheth had to do was receive it. And that's the kind of love that God has given us. It wasn't based on our performance. It's, it wasn't a transaction that he made with us where he's like, okay, if you love me real good, I'll save you. It, that's, what, that's not what it was. He didn't love us because we're lovable. He doesn't keep loving us because we've somehow become lovable or because we achieve a lot of things. His love towards us is permanent. Nothing can separate us from his love. Now, sometimes the way that he expresses love towards us may differ based on our actions because he loves us, he disciplines us. But it's love nonetheless. But it's, his love is not a business deal where we have to keep our end of the bargain. It's something he poured out on us. All we had to do was receive it. And so for us, we need to love just like David loved Mephibosheth, just like we have been loved. We have to love without hoping to get something in return. 
That's the way we should love others. It's, it should not be transactional. It's not a trade. Like, I'll love you if you love me. It should just be given. And oftentimes, love is reciprocated. But truly selfless love is given without any expectation of getting anything in return. Otherwise, it's not selfless. If we're doing it so we get something back, it's not selfless. But here's the sweet thing about loving like that. If you're not expecting anything in return, you can't be disappointed when you don't get anything back in return, right? Your expectation will not be disappointed. Number six, we find in verse seven, love casts out fear. So David came, or Mephibosheth came before King David, not knowing what to expect. But the first thing that David said to him was, do not fear, do not be afraid. You know, Mephibosheth came before King David with fear and trembling. So how much more should we expect to go before God Almighty with fear and trembling? Yet God has called us in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly to the throne of grace. Ephesians 3.12 says we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So because Jesus has fully absorbed God's wrath towards us, we have no reason to approach the throne of God with fear anymore. We can approach him as a father. And, and just like we approach God, we can approach God without any fear of our past being thrown in our face. We should love others in a way, in such a way that we are reminding them of this. We're reminding them of God's forgiveness instead of reminding them of what God needed to forgive them for. You know, it's, it's easy to give off an attitude that says, well, God has forgiven you, but I'm still pretty repulsed by your sin. I think it's still pretty gross, right? But 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the way that we can love other people in, in this way that will help cast out fear is by reminding people of the truth of the gospel, that God is, has cast their sin as far as the east is from the west, and we live in that reality as well, that their sin has been forgiven, instead of living in a way that is always reminding people of who they were before Jesus. Number seven, love is undeserved. You know, David had never met Mephibosheth before. He didn't know him. He didn't know what kind of person he was. But he loved him the way he did because of his love for Jonathan. It says it was for Jonathan's sake. And it was also a reflection of David's heart before the Lord. Mephibosheth had not done a single thing to earn David's kindness. He did not deserve it, yet he received it. And you and I did nothing to earn the love that we've received from God. It was not based on our worth or our performance or on us at all. God loves us solely because he loves us. No other reason. And so we need to love others the same because God loves us. His love for us is the motivation to love others. The recipient of our love should not be a factor in whether or not we love them. We're simply called to love others because God loves us. 
not because we've deemed somebody worthy of our love. We love because we have been loved when we were unworthy. And the beautiful thing about loving other people that way makes it a lot easier to decide who you should love. It's everybody, right? No one is excluded. Because we have been loved by God, we should extend the same love to everyone. I'm going to go a step further and say that if we're going to truly love others as God has loved us, then we should be loving people intentionally, people that we would naturally deem as unworthy because that's who Jesus loved. He only loved unworthy people. That's the only people he picked, is broken sinners. So that's who we should be loving as well. Number eight is love is generous. Love is generous. You know, we see the way that David poured out these blessings on Mephibosheth. It was not half-hearted. It wasn't stingy. It was abundant. It was abundant. You know, he gave him tons of land and servants to manage it for him, a way to provide for future generations, and a place at his own table. This is not David just throwing him a crust of bread in some sort of token manner of fulfilling his covenant to Jonathan. This is not token kindness. This is abundant kindness. And that's what we have received from the Lord. Generous, abundant love. You know, God, you know, he's the God who has given us and is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think. We have no right to expect anything from God, yet he has given us everything. His love and grace towards us is abundant. There is no other way to describe it. So our love also towards others, it should be abundant. We shouldn't be stingy with our love. And as we're loving people and serving people, it's not, it's not like do it as minimally as possible. Give people just, just enough so you can check that box. We should love with the same abundance that we have been loved with. The abundant love that we have received should result in abundant love flowing out of us. Number nine. Love gives us a place at the table. This love gives us a place at the table. You know, we see um, in verse 7 that David tells Mephibosheth that he will eat at his table continually. In verse 11, it says, as, as one of the king's sons. Now, this, is, this was not just free food for Mephibosheth. David's not just offering him free food. He was bringing him into his household. He was including him into the family. You know, I think it's pretty clear that Mephibosheth didn't have any other family members besides his son because David had to go and search high and low for some descendant of Saul. Mephibosheth didn't have family. And so bringing him into his, giving him a place at his table, it wasn't just the physical blessing of food, but it was a place in his family. It was a living example of what David wrote in Psalm 27.10 where he says, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David took him in. He made him part of the family. And that's what God has done for us. 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us or lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. 
In, first, or in John 1.12 says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. God has not just saved us from hell after we die, but his, in his salvation, he has brought us into his family. He's called us sons, daughters, children. Not lesser children, not barely family. He's called us his children. We have a place at his table a place in his family. That's what God has done for us. And so for us to show this same love, it looks like extending the welcome to the family kind of love to the people who are outside, people who we don't know. It's so easy for us to treat our close friends like family. That's not hard. But to those people who we don't know, people who we don't necessarily have something in common with, people who we don't recognize, those are the people who need to be brought in to the family, into our circles. Those are the people we need to sit down next to. Those are the people we need to have that awkward get-to-know-you conversation with where you're just kind of stumbling. There's awkward silences. Those are the people we need to be, out, be on the lookout for. Those are the people we need to introduce ourselves to and then introduce them to others, bring them in. Those are the people that we need to leave the conversation we're having with our friend and say, hang on, I see somebody I don't recognize. And go and sit with them, greet them, meet them, bring them in. Because the last thing we want, whether it's in church or, or, or anywhere, is have someone come in and say, I thought this was supposed to be a loving place and no one said hi to me, no one greeted me. We need to be willing to leave our cliques, our friends, our comfortable, our comfortable circles in order to love people in this way. It's not the people who are already seated at the table who need an invitation. It's the ones who aren't. Those are the people who need brought in. And that's what Jesus did for us. He brought us in and he gave us a place. He made space. He pulled in another chair and said, there is room for you. And the last thing, number 10, is love blesses many. In verse 12, we see that, you know, this blessing that David gave Mephibosheth, it was a blessing to his whole family, and it mentions uh, a son that Mephibosheth had, right? So to his young son and future generations, this blessing that David gave Mephibosheth, it would affect all of them. David's kindness blessed more than just one man, it, it blessed others, and it set Mephibosheth up to be able to bless other people. And you know, when we love others this way, in a selfless, generous, intentional way, it's not going to affect just that one person. It's not just about that one person. It's going to affect other people that they come in contact with, Right? It's going to impact their families if they feel loved by the people of God. And you know, if somebody comes to know the Lord because we took the time to love them, it's going to affect generations. We don't always see the fruit of, of loving other people, of speaking a kind word, of sitting down next to somebody because they're by themselves, but that can have serious impact. The efforts that we make to be intentional about doing this, the Lord is going to use it. He's not going to waste it, and he's going to bless it 
because this is what he's done for us. Because you follow Jesus, your life impacts many. Because the love that God has poured out on you, when you spread that to others, that impacts many people. So it's worth our time to be intentional, to be uncomfortable, to be willing to make sacrifices to love other people because it spreads and impacts so many people. So remember both how much you are loved by God and how he has loved you and let that love overflow into the lives of those people around you. Don't be too proud to receive his love for you. You're not too good and you're not too bad. You are lovable by God. So receive it. Don't let sin stifle it. Let it overflow out of you and look for opportunities to show his love to people who don't know him. You know, as soon as you start looking, you're going to start seeing opportunities. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, you've chosen uh, in your in your graciousness and in your kindness to use us, Lord, and to use our, our weak <laughs> efforts to love people in just a fraction of the way that you've loved us, and you use that to bring other people to you, Lord. We want people to know that we are your disciples because of the way that we love each other and that we love the world around us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd stir our hearts, that you'd bring to mind um, areas where we need to grow, that you'd bring to mind um, people that we have seen who are alone, people who need to be loved. And would you just give us opportunities, Lord, to die to ourselves, to sacrifice, to place our needs to the side and seek the good of somebody else in an effort to show them your love, Lord. We can't do this without you. We can't do this without your spirit and without a deeper understanding of your love for us, Lord. So help us to just continually know the love of God which passes understanding and that we would be rooted and grounded in it and that it would impact lives around us, Lord. Would you just use us as individuals, use us as a church um, to bring people uh, to know you, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.